Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes John Higgs to discuss his book, Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and the British Psyche. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by John Higgs, the author of Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and The British Psyche. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Nate. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. Yeah, this is a fun book. I hadn't... I mean, it's a fairly obvious comparison. Like, as you point out, both Love Me Do, the first Beatles single on um, Parlophone, and Dr. No, the first Doc- James Bond movie, were released on the same day, Friday, October 5th. 1962 yeah how long have you been thinking about these two as a pair i mean i think i think it was um i think it was at the early days of the the lockdown and the pandemic period when i i realized i think i just got lost on the internet i found myself on the wikipedia page of dr no which we've, we've all been there and i just saw the date that it came out the 5th of october 1962 and you know i'm enough of a beatles nerd that i just thought no, that can't be. Surely not. That's too much of a coincidence. Um, but I checked, and it was the first Beatles single and the first James Bond film did come out on exactly the same day. Um, and the moment I just sort of put them together like that, it was quite extraordinary. Suddenly, the, I don't, it was something about the context or, or, or something about bringing the two together. They started to these very familiar things started to reveal so much more about themselves. Uh, they started to talk about, you know, masculinity and class and Britishness and all these, all these sort of things. And I just thought, oh, that's just too, a part of me thought, hey, that just sounds really selfless, you know, insanely sort of um, such a commercial sort of thing. Um, I'll be ashamed of it. It would be too, too commercial, but I just couldn't resist it. It was just too tempting. Oh, I'm glad you didn't resist it. I think I think you brought a lot of insights to the table. And I've talked to Jonathan Gould about the Beatles as, um, you know, at this point in history, after after World War II, Britain becomes part kind of a satellite of the new American empire that's taken over the world in the aftermath of World War II. And therefore, Britain is kind of on the periphery of empire, perfectly positioned to become culturally dominant, which from the Beatles to the Acid House Revolution you know, there's a, a nice period at the end of the 20th century where Britain is kind of the dominant cultural voice of the quote-unquote Western powers, which essentially devolves into the U.S. empire. But mm-hmm. James Bond adds a whole wrinkle to it um, because he's this fantasy of British empire as it never really was and as if it had continued into the late 20th century on diminished. Tell us about Ian Fleming and how he saw this, you know, the British Empire and, and the the British man of action in the world. Yeah, he was, it's probably fair to say that he was one of the people in denial about uh, Britain's position as a world power in the second half of, of the 20th century. Um, and we kind of, we kind of hear a lot from people like Ian Fleming uh, and people from that background. Um, and we don't tend to hear from people like you know Ringo or someone like that who was growing up in Toxteth in in a small part of of Liverpool um and it's 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 frustrating because people like Ian Fleming are kind of rare you know I mean 
they're not what it's like to be British. You can live in Britain, you can grow up in Britain, you can be part of this country. Really not encounter people of that background, except when you turn the TV on and then there they are all over the sort of media and it becomes, um, uh, I don't know, it, people sort of believe that Downton Abbey is like Britain and things like that. And it's it's just completely alien for most of us. It's a, it's a very different um, different country. And at that point in time, after the Second World War was over and, and the country was pretty ruined and um, absolutely skint. And, you know, there was food rationing into the 1950s and we we're in a bad way. Uh, and we were no longer a global empire as we had been you know, so many years earlier. And it kind of left the question, you know, well, if if we're not that, if we're not that thing we used to tell ourselves we were, then what are we? We needed a new sense of ourselves. We needed a, a new sense of ourselves as, as modern. And the fact that you were talking about um, Britain being a creative country, um, I mean, it pretty, pretty much is in terms of, you know, fashion, in terms of video games, in terms of music, and in terms of acting, and, on a, a, you know, a, a lot of creative fields Britain does very well in at the moment. It never used to be like that at all. Um, it was always way behind, um, you know, France in terms of art or, or most of Europe in terms of music. It was uh, literally it was great for literature, but all the other creative arts that just wasn't us in, in the slightest. We were always, um, you know, the workshop of the world or, or, or something like that. A nation of shopkeepers, as Napoleon uh, uh, told us. There was no sense of Britain as, as a creative company, a country really, um, until there was this great upsurge of, um, I guess, a, a brief period where the working class sort of got a voice after World War Two that ushered in, you know, everything, most symbolically, the, the Beatles, that sort of changed who we think of ourselves as. And let's go ahead and hear the first James Bond theme. Uh, this is uh, as recorded by John Barry, but... Um, he didn't record it, right? Uh, he didn't write it. I mean, it was written by Monty Norman, but there's some debate about whether or not Barry. There's a was lot of the yeah. There's a lot of bad blood, I think, uh, over over this subject. It was initially the theme was, as I say, not John Barry's, but he did bring an awful lot to it. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's there's been there's been there's been words, put it that way, <laughs> about, about the credit and credits list. All we can say is it's just a great theme. You know, it's just a really, you know, extraordinary, uh, brilliant theme. And it's it's those movies that have a great theme that become something more, you know, things like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Jaws, the, uh, Harry Potter, maybe. That need for a brilliant, brilliant theme um, is often overlooked in, in terms of, uh, the the impact of films, I think, and that the fact that Bond has always had it, the music so good, I think, goes a long way to explain it's uh, how how long it's been with us. Absolutely, and let's hear it. This is the James Bond theme, as recorded by John Barry and his orchestra. the legendary James Bond theme by John Barry and his orchestra. And it's fascinating to me. Uh, I, I put the James Bond theme because it's guitar driven, even though it's ultimately, uh, you know, a brassy Nelson Riddle style swing orchestra playing it. It's got that guitar lick in there that to me ties it in with like Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn um, or, uh, you know, that kind of instrumental adjacent to rock and and people like Dwayne Eddy mm. and and the shadows and others brought it into rock so it's kind of fascinating to me to go through all these themes and hear the relationship of the bond themes to rock and there's yeah a, you know a number of things that make bond seem hipper than he actually was in the 60s and sean connery is one of these x factors because he was a working class scott talk about sort of ian fleming's version of bond 
versus Sean Connery's realization of it and how that connected with this, like you said, explosion of working class creativity, because it wasn't just Sean Connery. You know, you had multiple actors. Um, Michael Caine jumps to mind. Um, mm. Uh, the brother of the manager of the who I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but you know, he had this <laughs> explosion of working class actors and also the Beatles are a big part of this as working class Northmen and, you know, Sean Connery from Scotland, the Beatles from Liverpool. Talk about that sort of rise of the working class and how people like Ian Fleming saw it. Yeah. I mean, it's notable that uh, Ian Fleming's vision of James Bond was not Sean Connery, not at all. He wanted a David Niven type. He wanted someone like himself. James Bond was essentially um, Ian Fleming's fantasy version of himself. It was the version of him that he wanted to be. Um, and that part of that was the upper class, um, old school tie sort of um, school of Englishness. And I don't think he quite realized that for those outside of his social circle, that's not as appealing a archetype as he seemed to think it was. Um, and he struggled for about a decade to get the, his books made into film and, and television. Um, part of the reason was the Englishness of, of the character. Uh, and the brilliance of Cubby Broccoli um, was that they found... Um, uh, they, they sort of realised that what the character was about was an idealised sort of form of masculinity. It was it was who men wanted to be, really. Uh, and so they they did, le you know, reach out and get this working class um, Scotsman who embodied um, the the um, the the best parts of the character, really. The um, um, the, the the confidence uh, just to be himself, the um, uh, the bravery, and all all these sort of things. And he was, you know, there's a, there's a great story about Sean Connery that um, he he was in a film with Lana Turner before he became Bond, and um, Lana Turner had personally picked him to be her love interest, and she was going out with. Um, a guy called Johnny Stompanato, who was a mobster at the time. And uh, Stompanato came onto set and he saw the chemistry between Lana and Sean Connery. And he was just furious. And he turned on Sean and he pulled out a gun on him. Uh, you know, when a mobster pulls out a gun on you, you know, you're in trouble. And without thinking, without a blink, he just disarmed him and punched him in the face and he fell down flat to the floor. He just, because that's the sort of background he sort of grew up in. You know, you had to, um, you know, not lose face. You had to sort of uh, show, show your strength. Um, and I think Ian Fleming, when he saw how audience reacted to Sean Connery, he did row back and then he started to put in the last books he was writing. He started to give Bond a, a Scottish backstory. And he said that um, Bond went to Fetz, which is the, the um, exclusive public school in, in uh, Edinburgh. Uh, and the irony being that uh, Sean Connery did know Fetz, but only because he used to deliver milk there. He was the milkman <laughs> to, to that sort of thing. So very different worlds colliding, absolutely. And, and, you know, you kind of pause it, and it's right there in the title, that, that Bond is death and the Beatles are love. Mm. Talk about that contrast and, and, you know, what is this new vision of masculinity and Britishness that the Beatles represent in contrast to Bond? Yeah, I mean, that was something I just couldn't really resist the moment I put um, Bond and the Beatles together in my head. Um, the notion that they represent complete opposites. Um, you know, the Beatles, it's it's love me do, it's all you need is love, it's the summer of love. Um, the Beatles are about love. I mean, I'm sure if you ask Paul McCartney, that that would be his, his answer. Whereas uh, James Bond, you know, his, his unique uh, uh, thing is that he's got a license to kill. He can kill anyone he wants. He's, he's basically death. His films are, you know, uh, live and let die, um, a view to a kill, die another day. And love and death, um, well, according to uh, Freudians anyway, these are the sort of the two competing drives within us. These are the, 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 the clash between these things is the great struggle going on in, in our psyches. They refer to um, love, the love drive as Eros and the death drive as Thanatos. And so the uh, love and death do sort of clash in this weird sort of interesting way. You see it in mythology with Venus and Mars and, uh, and, and all these sort of things. And so for, for Britain trying to 
decide who it was and trying to come up with a vision of itself as this new modern um, thing. You know, love and death should really be the, the clashing forces. Uh, and it's quite interesting how both their visions uh, of what a modern country should be uh, are so different. You know, with, with Bond, it was... Um, it was about you know about gadgets and you know uh, you know uh, great cars and flying off to beautiful parts of the world. It was about the material things becoming better um, uh, and luxuries and and you know the, the best wines and, and all these sort of things. Um, it was about uh, physical things becoming better, but our attitudes going to bond should stay the same you know our attitudes to to women our attitudes to non-british people our attitudes to you know the class system and things like that they're all very very sort of fixed and rigid um with the beatles they had the absolute opposite you know they they kind of liked old things you know there's all the faux victoriana of um sergeant pepper all their songs about their childhood you know penny lane strawberry fields um that was all that was all great but for them it was attitudes need to change you know our attitudes to um to sex and to drugs and to you know religion and to uh, you know all that great sort of uh, you know turmoil that, that uh, came up in in the 60s um it, they were very very um clearly sort of opposite ways of approaching becoming new um and so the temptation to hold these um, up as two sort of opposing uh, uh, pillars was was kind of too tempting for me. I just couldn't resist it, really. I think it was, it was a good call. I think it's sometimes good to go with the obvious thing. And let's hear our next song. This is Goldfinger by Shirley Bassey. He's the man, the man with the Midas touch. A spider's A cold finger beckons you to enter his web of sin. And that was Goldfinger by Shirley Bassey. And, and that's an interesting one. I think it's the third Bond movie, maybe. Uh, Matt Monroe, who had been George Martin's attempt to bottle Frank Sinatra and reproduce it in Britain, uh, did the From Russia with Love theme. But Shirley Bassey really set the tone for the next several bond themes she, mm. she kind of drags it back to a swing pop that's still contemporary in the 60s and gives people like tom jones and nancy nancy sinatra who are going to fall in her wake kind yeah. of a path to follow and again it's uh, i'm just kind of fascinated by this relationship between rock and pre-rock pop that's being negotiated in this period and this is kind of a a pure you know an interim period you know J john barry figured out add a little bit of guitar and you sound contemporary. And then Shirley Bassey, it's hard to put your finger exactly what she's doing. I think it's just the command that she had. Yeah, uh, I think so. And, I th and such a great song. It just dominated its era and, and you know, carved out its own swath. But I want to get back to something. You start the book out, your first chapter after the introduction, when you introduce, you know, Bond and the Beatles as these quark and anti-quark that, you know, that's a quantum theory that... that mm a property and its opposite have to come into existence together. And so these two things come into the British mass consciousness at the same time in October yeah. 62. But you start with this chapter about young Richie Starkey, who is very ill child. And you make a pretty strong case that Ringo Starr would never have become. He wouldn't have existed. He would have stayed a young Richie Starkey and he would have died as a very young child without national health, which is exactly the Britain that Ian Fleming bitterly opposed. Talk yeah. about that and like Ringo's good fortune. I, there's a great part at the end when you say, you know, I don't think anyone would, would want to diminish Ringo's good fortune one iota. And I, I like that a lot. Talk, talk about Ringo in this context. Yeah, I mean, it almost feels Dickensian when you, you look back at uh, Ringo's childhood in particular. Um, I mean, they're all from a fairly similar background. John Lennon was a little bit more uh, well-to-do, but they, but Ringo in particular, because of his ill health and because of his lack of schooling, and, you know, his mum was told repeatedly that, uh, on, on a number of times, that he wasn't expected to live very long. And uh, it's just sheer good fortune that uh, it was at this point in time um, that the National Health Service was introduced. So for a family without the money for proper care, 
um, could get little Richard, as it was, in a hospital to convalesce from what were typical um, diseases of of, uh, of poverty, really pleurisy and uh, and and things like that. And and at the, sa- at the same time, there's a, there's a lot of social change going on in in Britain after the war. There's also a uh, an education act, the 1944 Education Act, which meant that people like George and Paul and John all got to go to better schools and have better educations, and that's all sort of part of the of the change. And it all sort of um, it, it sort of ties up in this this notion that uh, uh, a new country was being invented at the time. That 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 sort of that very Dickensian um, misery and poverty that sort of that Ringo experienced in his early days, you know, we're sort of moving away from that. Um, and it's, it, it, yeah, it just seemed to be the perfect place to start because there is something about the fact that Ringo, of everyone in the in this story, was the one to end up with the Bond girl, you know, that, that he married Barbara back, the spy who loved me. Um, I don't know what it is, but everyone just is delighted by that. I just feel, that just sort of feel feels great, you know. There is there's some justice somewhere. It should have been Ringo of all the people to to uh, go from such a such a um, an unprivileged and uh, uh, an unfortunate uh, beginning to for his for his you know to become Sir Ringo Starr now the internationally recognised multimillionaire person. Um, he he looks so healthy as well. You know, and he's he's in his he's in his eighties, and he can still get away with dyeing his hair black, which not a lot of people can. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, Ring- it's it, it, yeah. Sorry, Nate, go on. Uh, oh, that's all right. I was just wanted to celebrate Ringo's good fortune with you. I think you know it's a victory for everyone. And and you you posit this sort of and and you're not the first to do this. Many people have have come up with this concept of you know the four Beatles as this alchemical entity with with Ringo as earth you know rooting rooting uh, the rest of him to reality the the humble little guy with the big nose and and yeah. Paul is air you know with his his ineffable inspiration that we mere mortals can't fathom and and George is water who's deep mm-hmm. and dark and mysterious and John Lennon is fire you talk about his yes. bravery and his honesty and his you know, John Lennon's the the one. He gets a lot of flack, I think, from y- younger generations who want to call him out as a wife beater and other things. Mm. Which he was the first one to point that finger at himself, and that's why we know it because he was trying to get past that. And and he, yeah, you know, talk about that the possibility of change and and the way John Lennon sort of manifested the Ian Fleming ideal of masculinity or tried to and realized that, that it was a lie and and, and moved on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing about um, about John Lennon. About what's important about him is that um, he's, he's kind of this wounded healer archetype. Um, he's flawed, but he's trying. He knows he's got problems. He's trying to become better. I mean, whether he ever really made it or not isn't kind of the point. It's that um, that desire to sort of. Uh, transcend the flaws that you start with. Um, and I find that for a period after he died, there was an, a, an attempt to um, promote him as a bit of a saint, you know, this 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 man of peace, this, uh, um, this, this peace icon and something like that, and to sugarcoat him quite, quite a lot and to, to cover up um, the, the, the farrier sort of aspects of his personality. And I think it kind of diminished him because I think with Lennon, it is, it is knowing the flaws and knowing the demons that he was battling and, and knowing um, the difficulties he was trying to overcome uh, and seeing this quite a violent lad in, in quite a, um, quite a violent culture um, trying to become um, this man of peace, as I say, trying to become a, a feminist, trying to become um, better than, than he should have been. Uh, that's what's important about Lenin for me. And so to just to say, oh, yeah, but he was a wife beater and, and dismiss him like and that's we don't need to talk about him anymore. That's gone. He's sort of over. Seems a bit of a loss because he was more interesting than that, um, as it seems to yeah. me anyway. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, let's talk about the witch who sold John Lennon away from the Beatles. 
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And when I say which, of course, I'm referring to Yoko Ono, who I'm a big fan of. And I, I think you nail it that that Yoko Ono is a media and symbol manipulator of immense power. And and she came into the life of John Lennon, who you correctly identify as the most famous, most successful entertainer of his era, kind of the mm. perfect man of the 60s. And she comes in takes over, dramatically recreates his public image. It's an alliance between the two of them. Lennon, of course, was quite a wizard in his own right. Mm. But you said, you know, can we credit the way Yoko entered Lennon's life and offered him a way out of the Beatles as an expression of Ono's creativity? Expand on that. Like, you call it um, to take the most famous entertainer of his generation out of the mainstream, and place him in the world of conceptual art and radical politics is one of the most extraordinary works of art of her time. Please elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, assuming you're uh, prepared to go with Yoko's belief that your life was your art, that an artist's life becomes, you know, what is what they make and, and what they create. If you go along with that, then what she actually did then you know, there's a reason we're still talking about it 50 years later. You know, the the um, the switch from the uh, early John Lennon, the sort of pre-Rishikesh, sort of a uh, um, feisty, angry, fiery, um, horrendously talented, um, but frustrated and uh, and slightly damaged figure, to the um, long-haired peace content. Uh, you know, the the I'm thinking of the beddings and these these. Um, the the way they sort of manipulated the media to get the word peace on the newspaper front uh, front pages and and things like that it's it's such an extraordinary change i always thought it was weird that the way that um it, the the paul is dead uh, conspiracy theory was that paul had been replaced whereas john lennon seemed to be completely different um the john lennon with cynthia and the john lennon with with yoko are almost like two entirely different people on, on some levels and yoko i mean she's she's had a lot, hell of a lot of um uh really nasty abuse and misogynistic abuse and racist abuse over over the years um but i like the notion that 
you know, she did release this album called Yes, I Am a Witch, which I thought was very, very funny. But if, if you view the word um, witch sort of stripped of any sort of anti-female connotations, which it all often has, it's not easy to strip a word like that. Uh, if you look at the male equivalent where people say someone is like, oh, they're a magician, oh, they're a wizard, it's a positive thing. They've got some strange sort of power to, to um, manipulate the world. Um, Yoko does seem to fit into that sort of category. She is a very interesting person. I'm kind of, um, in in the book, I I slightly cop out and sort of say, well, it's, uh, you know, the art world will decide, you know, the value of her her work as an artist uh, in the years after she's gone. Um, Because I can can see that being still a bit of a battlefield about whether there is much value in it at all or not. Um, but certainly, um, yeah, there's definitely, there's a definite reason we're still talking about her. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's not only this queen of a monetary empire and a, and a cultural empire. I mean, she's still a force today. Uh, you know, writers who could get crosswise with her, but sometimes find their yeah. books still get published. Um, absolutely. You know, so- and it, it's fascinating that there's, cause there's a, there's a, I've got a whole shelf of those books written by sort of uh, disgruntled ex-employees of the Lennon Nono family in the 1970s. And they're often sort of dismissed because they've got a, a chip on the soldier and they've got a grudge or something like that. But they do kind of fit together quite well. The stories they do tell do sort of, you know, mesh. And there's, you know, it's noticeable that there isn't a similar shelf of ex-employees of the McCartneys or the Harrisons or the Stars or, or something like that. And it yes. kind of, we kind of are waiting. That's, that's, that's a horrible way to put it. But it, it won't be until after she's no longer with us that I think we'll finally uh, agree on the story of John Lennon in the 1970s. It's still, it's still something you can't quite touch. You know, there's a she has control over how it's told a little bit, and it's yeah. I think to think to his disadvantage. I think we need to be. Uh, I think honesty with Lennon is always the best you know the best approach and to and to look at that period honestly is 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 really what he deserves i think yeah and i I think we'll get there and 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 i'm sure opinions will change evolve over time as different generations evaluate this incredible character and somebody whose art is such an element of put on is always going to have people uh confused and and angry but i want to talk about paul mccartney's magic because Mm. you i think pinned down how he survived this. And, and it, there's a story by Pete Townsend, uh, an anecdote that you didn't mention in the book, but but I thought was telling that mm. Townsend is somebody who met both Lennon and McCartney, you know, in this in the hey- heyday of the Beatles in the swinging 60s. And he said, when you hung out with John Lennon, you'd spend the first, it wouldn't take long, 10, 15, 30 seconds establishing that he was John Lennon of the Beatles and you were not. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was going to be in charge and he was going to take you on a wonderful evening. But this was going to be the John Lennon Beatles show, whereas yeah. Paul McCartney would try to be one of the lads and just be a mate. And that it was weird and off putting in a way to Townsend, but that he came to admire it. And talk about McCartney's mastery of ordinariness and how he used that as a shield to protect him from this he, insane he, level of fame. He did. And it did rub people up. Uh, the wrong way people did find something insincere or weird about it there's sort of a his very normal matey you know thumbs aloft sort of jolly persona um because he was paul mccartney you know he was i i I suspect my 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 feeling is paul was the one who recognized the importance of the beatles uh more than the others did um when you see him talking about in the Get Back film, he's, he's saying, wouldn't it be ridiculous if in 50 years people are talking about, oh, they split up because Yoko sat on, sat on an amp, um, which has happened. Uh, it's notable that he's thinking that people will be talking about this in 50 years' time, you know. Um, uh, the, the other Beatles didn't, I mean, George Harrison didn't seem to be that into the Beatles. He thought maybe they'd sort of got lucky. And uh, uh, Lennon was of the view, at, certainly in the early 70s, that, you know, he transcended them and was doing better things. I, I think it was only Paul who really grasped that, no, they have changed Western culture 
and they will be talked about um, in centuries to come, you know. And it wasn't that long ago that we used to talk about the Beatles and the Stones as if they were, you know, equal or equivalent sort of things. And now you tend to hear people, particularly in Britain, we describe ourselves as a country of Shakespeare and the Beatles. It's sort of on that sort of level. And if, if you're aware that basically you're walking around as a, a, a name that people not yet born, people in centuries to come, people around the world will know. And you're surrounded by people, everyone else, who will just be forgotten by history. You know, it could easily turn you into a monster. It would be a difficult thing to live with. And I think this sort of enforced ordinariness that he sort of clings to is his way to deal with that. I think he has to, because deep down, he knows what it means to be Paul McCartney. And he has to sort of try and damp it down because he's got a life to live. You know, he's got he's got to he's got to go go around with his, you know, ordinary mortals who will be forgotten very, very quickly. Um, so even yeah. even that yeah, even though it does it, it you know, there was a period um where he was seen as very, very naff. Uh, particularly in the 80s and, and, and things like that, um, where it really didn't work for him uh, being such a such a normal sort of uh, simple sort of soul, as it were. Uh, but I think in the long run, he's done the, the, the wisest thing you could have done in the circumstances. Yeah, he's taken his licks and stuck with it. But let's hear Paul McCartney's essay of a Bond theme. This is Live and Let Die from 1973. ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry say live and let die And that was Paul McCartney's classic uh, James Bond theme, Live and Let Die, from the movie of the same name from 1973. And this is where there's a switch, where they, you know, the production company kind of has to deal with rock and roll as the dominant musical form. And and this is kind of the perfect compromise. You, you get the king of rock and roll to make a James Bond theme, and he's adaptive enough and clever enough to do it in the spirit of James Bond, but still rocks uh, harder and still finds ways to do weird things like put in a little reggae break in, in the middle <laughs> <laughs> to, to keep that sort of Paul McCartney weirdness there. But I want to yeah. also talk about uh, George Harrison a little bit because and I'm also and it ties into to the point you were making about the Beatles versus the Stones and you know this. So three things that I want to get out there. First, your talk about Paul McCartney and the ordinariness makes me think of a sad story about Leighton Brian Jones' life when he goes to Sri Lanka and mm. has a temper tantrum at the desk of the hotel he's trying to check into, and he's screaming, "Don't you know who I am? I'm the Rolling Stones," you know. And that's kind of the way you end up at the bottom of your swimming pool at age 27 is 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 clinging to this artificial identity that you've yeah. created that's not. A real thing and then you know the stones beatles rivalry is very much a a, a a baby boomer thing that it was when rock and roll was taking over the culture and the stones were kind of the avatars of the spirit of rebellion and the beatles were too but they superseded that and and this ringo said you know we had the grannies and the kitties too yeah and not just the younger generation and I've seen it with my own kids. My own kids love the Beatles. They were raised on the Beatles. They were exposed to the Stones and jazz and, you know, country and all kinds of other things. But the Beatles are the ones that they pick out and love as their own. And you point out that it's the Dark Horse. It's George Harrison's Here Comes the Sun. That's the mm. most popular song on Spotify with the younger generations. Talk about that. Like Harrison and his relationship with Beatledom, which like you say wasn't comfortable with it he wanted to go beyond that and how he's he's seen now yeah absolutely i mean it is it is i mean it is lovely that um 
uh, for all he was overlooked, especially in the later period of the Beatles, when he was writing all these all these songs uh, that mainly made up um, All Things Must Pass. And the Beatles would go, no, I think we'll just put um, Maxwell's Silver Hammer on the album instead. And he was being horribly overlooked uh, in, in, in that way. That, um, that when the generation raised in the 21st century uh, discover the Beatles and find the Beatles on, and they're all there on Spotify for them. It's a George Harrison song that they go, well, that's the one that's, you know, it wasn't even released as a single, you know, at the time it wasn't seen as anything. Um, uh, and that, that's, that's, that's the kind of the strength of the Beatles back catalog. It's so, so rich and there's, it's so varied and it's so different um, that there's um, that different generations come and pick out different things. You know, the baby boomers there for them. Uh, typically it's Sergeant Pepper. That's the one. That's the that's the peak. If they remember that time, that summer when it came out, when it was like the world went into colour, you know, then that's the, the key album. For I I'm Generation X and for my generation, it was Revolver. That was that was the album. That was the the, the best. Um and then Millennials, it's it's Abbey Road. And so we're always we're all coming to it um completely differently and it's it's the fact that we keep coming to it that's really interesting it's it's normal for someone raised in the 21st century to be able to tell you the names of all four members of the beatles in a way that it's not for any other 20th century band at all you know they do keep finding an audience in the way that say bob dylan hasn't really um and it, it is um it's kind of like our folk music it's it's what we sort of we're surrounded by it growing up. You know, if you if you learn an instrument, if you learn piano or guitar or something, you will probably try and learn a Beatles song because, as I say, that's that's our that's our folk music. But um, yeah, so George Harrison, he was he was asking about. He was um, he he's a, I mean he's such a fascinating character, really interesting character, and he I think there's a when you look at his life after the Beatles, you sort of get a sense of just how isolating fame is uh, and, and just how he was no longer able to meet people as an equal uh, and have relationships um, as an equal. And what a toll that sort of that takes on people. It's kind of why they're so incestuous, really, all the, you know, the, the relationships with them. Um, you know, George having an affair with Ringo's wife and, you know, uh, the, all the Eric Clapton stuff, which is, I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll all be familiar with the, the the complicated emotional shenanigans involved in in all this sort of thing. There's just a, a small group of people who who cannot meet people on a normal level, who cannot have a normal life, and so they sort of they 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 tend to go inwards quite a lot. And you know, they'll be in these big country houses and. Um, with nothing much to do and lots of lots of drugs and lots of cocaine and it, there's a hardening of the self that that sort of comes from that uh that, that can be very 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 tragic um and the way george tried to deal with that and the, the importance of religion uh which was a big factor in that is is all fascinating yeah he's, he's a really interesting guy that's the problem with the beatles every every part of it <laughs> it's so rich and 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 uh uh and the more more you learn about it, the more interesting it be, it becomes. It's just a hole you could lose yourself in, you know. It's there's most subjects you, you you get your heads around it, and you go, I've got the gist of that now. Uh, I've got what I need to know. I'll move on. But the Beatles. The more you know, the more the more you discover. The more you read, the richer it all becomes. Uh, it's the the relationships between those four men are so endlessly fascinating. I think that's why they've become quite mythic, really. Certainly in music terms, they are the um, the band relationships and you know, adding Yoko and things to that is, is how we understand what it is to be in a band. Um, yeah, sorry, mate, I'm just rambling now. You, you set me off on George. It's good back. stuff, though. Uh, uh, but I <laughs> want to just... get to back... I want to get back to Bond, though. Like, you know, the Beatles break up in 1970, and there's uh, Bond loses Sean Connery, but it seemed in the 70s that Bond had adapted to modern times better than the Beatles had. The Beatles were gone. Yeah. Um, talk about the, the 70s and 80s and 90s era of Bond and how they, you know, reconciled with those eras and why, ultimately, though, they haven't, Bond hasn't had the staying power of the Beatles. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's I mean, what you have to understand about both Bond and the Beatles is neither of them make any sense at all. Neither of them are remotely plausible. You know, the idea that um, you could make an, an action movie uh, around one hero that would go on to have, you know, 25 sequels over 60 years, all of which are successful, all of which you make money. It's it's just impossible. You know, if, if that was possible, every um, every film producer would be doing it. Um, but and if, if it wasn't the fact that Bond exists, the whole idea would would just seem ludicrous. Um, uh, and and so when you see the way Bond adapts over the decades, um, certainly there was no uh, great um, critical support for him. Uh, every film since about 1967 there's been reviews that say yeah you, sh- you should stop making these films now they're just getting a bit embarrassing now aren't they you know this is all a bit old hat this it's had its time you know probably best leave it now lads you get that in 67 and 69 you get that all through the 70s you get that all through the 80s you had it all through the 90s the zeros you, you still got it with the last film um it's this this constant um uh informed critical belief that the thing should be over and yet it's not and yet it continues and yet every few years it comes back with another film and another film and in doing so it becomes um, a tradition and a tra- tradition is powerful magic tradition is um it's a strange thing uh and it, be- and it became very much part of the the british establishment there'd always be a big um uh, premiere of the new Bond film and it would have, you know, in the 80s it would be Charles and Diana would go or whichever member of the royal family could be sort of roped in to support this film about an establishment assassin um, and, and the way that Bond has survived uh, and continued I think is really interesting um, and I think it's uh, how it's going to do in the 21st century is another matter because he's very much become everything that generation z define themselves against this you know this this straight white male uh, murderer establishment assassin you know um if he, if he can continue going through this um it'll be it'll be extraordinary but the way he does it is bond has this weird ability to sort of go um to the audience especially to the male part of the audience you'd like to live like this, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to be a bit more like this? Which, you know, other spy films or anything don't have that. You know, nobody fantasizes about being, you know, Jason Bourne or something like that. But the bond is always, it's not what men should be. It's not what men need to be. It's always what men want to be. And it tries to track that as it changes over the decades. Uh, and it has changed an awful lot. It's surpri- it's, it is surprising. And it's always, you know, behind the curve. And it's never ideologically pure or possible to defend or anything anything like that. But it is the territory where where change happens. Uh, And just by looking at the history of the Bond films, you can see how men view what they want to be shifting and changing uh, over the years in a way that is is positive, in a a way that is getting, you know, a lot better. Uh, If you look at where we came from to where we are now, it's a lot has changed. It's it's definitely moving in the right direction. And so Bond has... Um, this strange ability to keep going so long as it can track who we want to be now. Um, and let's, which, let's hear one more tune. And, and, you know, like you say, it, it has improved. Sometimes the, the leading ladies actually survive the film these days. So, oh, yeah. Let's hear uh, one more uh, Bond song. And if I had eight or 12 songs to go, there's more more to this story. But I want to I want to play Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better. Uh-huh.
And that was Nobody Does It Better, sung by Carly Simon, written by, composed by Marvin Hamlish. And I picked that one because I'm, I've been fascinated for a while, ever since I interviewed um, uh, a Bee Gees biographer about this creation of modern pop. Like we think of Celine mm-hmm. Dion and you know, we've had this definition of pop since the 90s. And to me, it was formulated in the 70s when people like Barbara Streisand, who are coming from this traditional Broadway background, people like Carly Simon, who are coming from the sort of folk singer-songwriter background, you know, Marvin Hamlish, obviously, in the Broadway category. Then you get people like Barry Gibb, who are coming from a British pop uh, pop rock background. And then Lionel Richie, who's coming from this R&B background. And together, you know, with a few other creators, Donny Hathaway and, and others, create this, this new sound that's acceptable to previous generations who've, they've thrown in the towel on resisting rock and roll. But this is the, the version of stuff that they're comfortable with. Talk about that, like how Bond has has Bond themes have had this evolving relationship with rock. And, you know, it's, I think it kind of was per, it was obviously perfect with the John Barry theme at the beginning. And then this reconciliation, I think, was perfected by Carly Simon. And then so like Sheena Easton's uh, Bond yeah. theme was kind of an update on that. But then they struggle in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. Talk about that. Evolution. Yeah, it, it is interesting. The bo- uh, Bond thing is almost a thing in itself, which musicians of any era attempt to map themselves onto. Billie Eilish talked a lot about this when when she did the last uh, the last Bond film. You know, it was to create Bond music from her background. Um, it, it, she had to adapt herself, but not that much. You know, there was an aspect of herself that could sort of map onto this. It, it doing a similar thing to what, say, Duran Duran tried to do in in the eighties, or um, or you know, all those those great examples in the seventies and sixties that you, that you're talking about. It's um, it, it's. I mean, if you look at the 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 list of Bond themes over the years, you have to be impressed. By, partly by the people that they had, uh, the people who stepped up to 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 do it, but also the quality of, of the songs. Most of them are songs that people will still know. Most of them have, have, have been memorable. Um, it's been it's been a very important um, aspect in keeping the character um, alive to a contemporary audience. Things like Adele doing the Skyfall, you know, the scene, uh, was, was a real help for that movie, you know, that, that brought it down to a new, because it, it's, it's a franchise that sort of needs to keep getting a new audience. And it's, it's been struggling with that a bit recently, but Adele and particularly Billie Eilish have, have really sort of, sort of helped with that. Um, but musically, how you define it, I don't know. I always find it funny in Goldfinger, there's that scene where, um, Bond himself is slagging off the Beatles uh, and he says something that like, um, oh, you know, drinking such and such a wine below a certain temperature is like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. And it's just a, such a real, um, it's a real, the line really clangs, you know, because Bond is supposed to know quality. He's supposed to know what's good. Uh, he, he's supposed to know what's the best of everything. Um, and so for him to get the Beatles so wrong is is a real sort of missed note, you know, bad note. And it's it's noticeable that he's never, since that moment, he's never referred to popular culture, you know, ever again. You know, he's he's never given his thoughts on the last One Direction album or any anything like that. It's a world he, he doesn't sort of function in. He doesn't, you know, his world is the material world. He's a master of the material world. Uh, music and things, uh, he doesn't really understand. And yet the film sees, uh, series itself, um, has used music so wonderfully, you know, and so brilliantly uh, that you, uh, over the decades, you really have to admire it. Yeah, I mean, like things like License to Kill by Gladys Knight, um, which was, you know, this this team, Narada Michael Walden, Jeffrey Cohen, Walter F. NCF, I mean, they were doing the hits of the day in the late 80s and, and Bond, they were perfect to do Bond. And that was 
they did kind of stumble with the Duran Duran and especially the aha living daylights. So I think, you know, well, aha, I, I mean, you I could find plenty of people would argue against that. <laughs> they certainly have their, their, their fans, they, those things. Well, that, the, you know, the take on me is obviously a classic. And I always kind of felt like, <laughs> waste, you know, that, that, that they put so much of themselves into that. It's kind of like a, a Tolkien Silmarillion, you know, the elf that put his soul <laughs> into the gems that, you know, but, <laughs> But in this, you know, they, they they had this 80s, 90s period. I think, you know, the Tina Turner singing mm. a song written by Bono and the Edge, Goldeneye in the mid 90s, yeah. Sheryl Crow doing a version. But then in the 2000s, they kind of struggle. And it, to me, it kind of parallels the struggle of rock itself in that period. You know, you've got Chris Cornell solo doing one. Mm -hmm. You've got Jack White sort of awkwardly partnered with Alicia Keys. Uh, in 2008, doing another way to die, and and I think you're right. Like when they get with Adele and Billie Eilish, it's much more in the spirit of of the 2010s and the 2020s than the 2000s. The knots were just an odd period for yeah. rock, I think. <laughs> and and Bond. This, this is true. I mean, when you look at the artists that they, they've had themes from, and it goes from like Louis Armstrong to Madonna. You know, with uh, everyone you've mentioned along the way, Duran Duran and Paul McCartney and, and everyone along the way. It's a very varied lineup um, of, of you know, the the, the ever shifting uh, cultural musical uh, trends. Uh, the fact that they could all sort of do what we all think of as a Bond theme is quite extraordinary, I think. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh... John Barry had just established, and with Shirley Bassey, I think by the third third movie, they had established a formula that included certain key elements you can sort of copy. The way The Weeknd might reference AHA or, or Michael Jackson, and you recognize it's an illusion, but it's not an actual ripoff. And so the, it gives you a lot mm. of space to do things with the Bond theme. But I want to wrap with the Beatles again. And and you've got this line from Kurt Vonnegut that, that sums up, you know, that his mission for artists was to make people appreciate being alive just a little bit for a little while. And mm. people asked him, well, who's an artist who did that? And he picks the Beatles. Yeah. I talk about that, the life force aspect of the Beatles and why you're kind of betting on that to, to in the long run to outrun the death urge of Bond. Yeah, I mean it's just joy. There's such a, there's such a sense of joy in in the Beatles. Um, you know, the, if you look at those early performances of things like you know that if she loves you or I want to hold your hand or those early simple sort of things, you just want to be in that band. You know, because they're alive. You just want to be alive. It's just. Um, it, it's in some ways it's not surprising. I mean, I talk about these things have been British, you know, Bond and the Beatles and these sort of Britain trying to work out its identity. But it was the whole world that fell in love with with this. It was, it was universal. It wasn't just a national thing. It tapped into some aspects um, of us. Uh, and it, it was like a sort of wave of, of delight and relief when the Beatles sort of turned up. Uh, it, you can understand why Beatlemania is the standard for any sort of fandom or mania or something like that. They always refer it back to it's like Beatlemania, you know. They don't say it's like New Kids on the Block, even though it may be a similar sort of thing when BTS fans are screaming or or whatever. Beatlemania was the sort of, I don't know, the, the unquestioned archetype of just people losing their minds in delight, you know. Um, and I'm so grateful that it happened. Um, particularly the, the 20th century was quite grim in, in so many ways with, you know, the two world wars and, you know, uh, the Somme and the Passchendaele and, uh, you know, the, well, all, all the great horrors of the, of, of the 20th century. Um, thank God we had something like this to help us get through it. Thank <laughs> God for the Beatles. Yes, indeed. And thank God for John Higgs and Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and The British Psyche. I really love the book. Love talking to you. And I'd love to have you back and talk about the KLF. There's a lot Oh, of yeah. Now that's a story. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> All right. Well, I will, I will take you up on it. I'll be in touch and we'll book that. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Like I said, the book is Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and The British Psyche. Thanks, John Higgs. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks.
follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.